Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peter. And my name is Andrew Gordon. And this is episode 135 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And as you probably could tell from our intro, we are excited to welcome back to episode 135, our special guest, Andrew Gordon. He's a longtime district quizzer. He's attended Great West in a variety of roles as a, let's see, an official, as a coach, as a quizzer multiple times. And he's, of course, he's an internationals quizzer. And uh, this year he's the internationals coach and he continues, uh, he has been and continues to be a PNW coach from time to time. And he is the vice chair of the PNW quizzing board. So welcome back, uh, Andrew. And for the last couple of episodes, we had the three of us have been chatting about the CBQ rules in depth. And we got through most of the main parts of scoring in episode 134. But in 135, we're going to be talking about rulings, which are pretty straightforward, timeouts, fouls. But then the big one is going to be appeals, uh, it, which is similar to challenges. Uh, and of course, World has been, and I think a few other programs have been using the word appeal for quite some time. Uh, I think uh, World has been using the word appeal instead of challenge for, I don't know, probably over 20 years at this point. And it, and it seems like CMA is on the verge of switching from challenge to appeal. I just was uh, checking up uh, some updates on the um, uh, CMA rules. Uh, editing process. And it looks like the rules committee voted to switch uh, from using the word challenge to appeal, just a, semant a semantic change. But in CBQ, we want to uh, define what an appeal is because it operates quite differently than both world and uh, CMA and probably uh, Nazarene and Free Methodist and other programs as well. So we want to dive into that stuff. All right. With all that being said, uh, Scott, do you want to kind of take it away and MC and we'll just kind of go section by section? <clears throat> yeah. So first up is rulings, section 2.5. The QM renders a ruling of a quizzer's response according to the translation on the quizzer's registration, not necessarily the source translation of the query, end quote. And this is something that I did not pick up initially I, when you told me of your idea of multiple translations, which I thought was just not not feasible in the slightest. But I do think it's it's really interesting how even though the prompts will be asked in differing translations, the quizzer can answer in their desired translation. And it makes it a lot more doable, especially because the ide I think the ideal quiz competition has queries where the speed at which they are jumped on throughout the prompt um, – People jump throughout the entire range over the course of an entire meet. Um, and because ideally you're jumping across that entire range, there is going to be opportunity for quizzers to win a jump on not their desired translation, and then they get to answer in their desired translation. Yeah, indeed. And not just can, but must, uh, at least in the current rules. That is something that is has been flagged for consideration for let's call it rulebook version 1.1. So the way the rules work right now is when you register uh, for a meet, you would say like, okay, this quizzer has memorized this translation or that kind of thing. So there's a a local quote unquote I call it local, but a local translation per quizzer. Uh, so you know, quizzer might have memorized the NASB or the NIV or ESV or whatever it happens to be BSB if you're you're coming from the world program. 
and that'll be assigned to the quizzer. And so whenever that quizzer throughout the meet trigger wins the trigger for uh, for a particular query, the quiz master, in fact, the software just automatically switches to the translation that the quizzer has um, has registered under. And so the, the quiz master just evaluates the response of the of the quizzer based on on the data that's showing up on, on the computer screen. So that's the way it works right now in you know 1.0 and that's how IOC is going to work. Um, there is a flag on this for uh, consideration of changing the rule slightly in a, a version 1.1, which is to say like, okay, turn it into a query select, uh, almost like a quizzer selected query subtype, right? Uh, so the idea being that by default, you can, you, if you say nothing, you're going to be evaluated against the translation that you've registered under. However, you can change your translation by calling a translation other than the one that you registered under. So let's say you register under NIV, but for whatever reason, you memorize chapter three in the ESV or something. So you simply call uh, ESV on whatever query it happens to be that, that you think is coming from, say, chapter three. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to this idea. I do think it's an interesting complicational thing. I'm not sure there's going to be a huge amount of use cases where quizzers are going to be memorizing from, say, multiple translations over a particular year. But this does seem to me to be something that's going to be more likely to occur as we grow adult quizzing. So somebody might have memorized, say, half of, of Matthew in NIV and decides they want to memorize the second half of, mem uh, of Matthew, and they might want to switch over to ESV for whatever reason. And so they may have Matthew in multiple translations based on the location in their head. So, um, Scott, Andrew, what are your thoughts about that? Um, either the 1.0, the 1.1, or anything thereof? Would you think that the current state of this rule and also the current state of a quizzer can answer, but then if they declare a subtype, anything that they've set up to that point is, is kind of thrown away, uh, as long as they weren't incorrect, of course. Would you say that both of these are more logistically driven? Because uh, to me, it seems like if you could create a world where a quizzer can switch subtypes and anything that they've said could be considered for their newly chosen subtype, or if they can just pick whatever translation they want on the fly. If we had a way for it to be ruled on easily, then why not allow it? But I just think that currently the logistical difficulty of ruling on it and switching translations and knowing what was said and what applies is too much. So we have to kind of draw these firm objective well sort of i think so i can lower using using software i can lower the barrier of difficulty to pretty close to zero so if we treat switching translation in the same way that we would treat um a, a subtype selection right so basically you can you at any time during during your 40 seconds you can switch translations but if you do so if you declare a translational switch you can't switch back and everything that you said prior to the translational selection is uh, ignored, right? So very basically, it, it's operating exactly the way calling verbatim uh, would be, uh, or adverse or whatever, right? Um, so 
doing it that way, the quiz master really, or sorry, quiz magistrate really only has to click a button. Uh, so on the, on the screen, the, the QM has these labels of like, uh, synonymous verbatim open book, uh, with reference all, all adverse and so forth. And these are just uh, basically button clicks that they, as soon as a quizzer says one of those things, the, uh, the QM just clicks these buttons and off to the races you go. It's, it's, so it, it, it's does not take a lot of uh, mental overhead for the QM to be able to handle this. Similarly, there are buttons for selecting the translation and they're just auto selected when a, uh, a quizzer, uh, is called. So, so essentially, you know, quizzer two, wins a trigger, I call the, the quizzer two's name and click their name in the program at the same time, which starts the timer. That action, in addition to starting the timer and selecting the, the quizzer for the scoreboard, it also triggers the, um, uh, the selection of the, of the translation for the quizzer. But then if the quizzer says, I want a different translation, it's like, okay, I just click a button and away we go. So to your point, Scott, like, yeah, the, the, the logistics of it are pretty small. And so maybe I'm just wrong here. I've, I've, I've been resistant to this idea, but maybe I should just get over it. Maybe there, maybe the cost of this thing is extremely low. Cause I, I always think about rules in terms of, can somebody game it or do something that we didn't intend, but these subtypes and answering kind of feels like running the bases in baseball where you don't have to decide if you want to run to third until you've already reached second. And so if someone answers synonymously, but then it's like, you know what? I want to try verbatim. The only thing we're really losing is maybe some time because you can't rule on a quizzer until their entire 40 seconds have elapsed. But I don't really see a problem with this or a quizzer mentally thinking I want to try verbatim. But then after 15 seconds, realizing that they need to downgrade to synonymous to mean there's nothing being gamed here. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I mean, to be to clear, to be clear to the listeners, remember, you, uh, if you call verbatim, you can't uncall uh, verbatim. And if you, um, uh, if you happen to get correct prior to your 40 seconds, you are immediately correct. Um, so like, for example, if I call synonymous, and I say, a synonymous answer, and then I realize, no, wait, I, I actually can do this verbatim it's too late, right? I've already, I've already earned my two points. I have to call verbatim before I'm correct. Um, now, of course, in, in the translational universe, uh, it, I suppose that doesn't really matter. So if I, if I end up going for a synonymous answer and I quote correctly in the NIV, but I actually wanted to quote the ESV, well, there's no point to switching translations, um, at that point, but it, it you know, the similar sort of construct, um, applies. So, uh, if I could just speak to for a second here about the idea of being able to switch translations on the fly of a quizzer being able to call which translation they want to answer in. Uh, I think at that point, we have to be careful about what we're incentivizing as far as study goes. So I think there could be a possibility that the quizzer knows a specific translation will be used at upcoming meet uh, in addition to the one they've memorized that they may decide it's more worth it to memorize a slightly smaller subset of verses and try to learn it as well in the new translation rather than studying more material. And I think what we want to incentivize in general is studying the most amount of verses. That's a, that's a really good point, right? So 
the the idea being that theoretically you could game the system by registering under a translation that's not your majority translation, right? Well, well, and also what I'm talking about is 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 having the translation be a subtype that the quizzer can switch in a quiz. So, in that, so if they're able to learn, you know, fifty verses uh, in two translations rather than a hundred different verses, uh, then you know, they'd be able to have an advantage at the meet where both translations are being used and they can switch between the two rather than just only being locked into one and having to memorize all the verses in that translation. Wouldn't you only need to memorize the prompts though? Like if I have, if I have 50 verses in two translations memorized, I think that's actually disincentivized regardless of this rule versus a hundred in one translation, because my range, like I, there, there is a possibility um, a pretty decent possibility that I can answer, uh, I can respond to queries correctly uh, in remote, what I call remote uh, translations. You're not your non-local translation, right? Um, it's just that I it requires me to get, you know, maybe an extra word or two uh, or a phrase more than what I would be able to recognize necessarily with a a, a, a quicker to be more clear prompt in my local translation. So like, um, does that, I don't know that that really, does that make sense what I'm saying? Uh, I think so. Mm. I mean, I mean, I think Andrew's right that if, if quizzers could switch, there'd be some, some in, increase in incentive to know an additional translation as well, whether it's just the prompt or more doesn't really matter. There'd be still some increase that would probably lead to, a total reduction in number of total verses. Um, I, I don't know how much, probably not large, um, but I also don't know if it's that bad. It may not necessarily be that bad, but I think the takeaway that I got from Andrew's comment, which I think is really on point, is the notion of I can, because you, Scott, you were talking about gaming. We don't want to allow gaming of a system. I can game a system by registering in a translation that I haven't memorized. Um, now what do you gain? Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm gaining all that much, but like, if I, if I met, let's say, let's say all three of us are memorizing the NIV. And so I'm, I memorize the NIV, but then what I do is I register under the BSB. And what I do prior to the meet is I study the prompts from the BSB. So then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, and then I just switch to I just call NIV on each uh, trigger that I'm that I win. It's like well I'm sort of I'm adding a translation to the mix that I didn't actually memorize. I don't know that it's a huge game, but it's like maybe it gives me a small advantage because I'm able to study the BSB prompts whereas others haven't. Well, and and let me be more clear. Sorry if, if I wasn't clear about what exactly I was saying, but I'm not really talking about registering in a different translation than the one you've memorized. I'm talking about if you're aware that there will be another translation used at the meet, that's not the one you memorized, you may decide, okay, so I'm not going to memorize all the verses that I can for this meet. I'm going to memorize these 50 verses in both my translation and the new translation. Um, and so we're incentivizing a lower range for better access to prompts that are not on the translation you were initially going to memorize. 
Right. Is there an advantage to that, though? It seems to me like in in either case, I'm memorizing 100 verses. Um, it's just that 50 of them are... If I go the 50 route, I'm memorizing 50 twice. Uh, you know, it, one in translation A and one in translation B versus memorizing 100 in one translation. I... I feel like I would be at a at a disadvantage if I did that, right? So, like, if I let's say you memorize a hundred verses out of one translation, and I do the fifty fifty thing, um, my range is only fifty verses. Your range is a hundred. You have a chance of being able to recognize and win triggers off a uh, hundred verses in both translations. Obviously, you're going to be stronger in your local translation, but you'll be able to pick off. Uh, queries from your foreign translation and just answer them in your local translation. Whereas I won't have that opportunity beyond those 50 verses that I've memorized. Like I'll have an advantage on those 50 verses, but you'll actually have the capability of, of responding correctly across a hundred verses. So I feel like I would be at a disadvantage if I went with that strategy. I suppose this, this is true. I, I think in general, when you when you're looking at the big picture, yeah, the hundred verse quizzer would have the advantage. I just I'm just not sure I see an advantage to the system for allowing a quizzer to switch what translation they're answering in. Um, and so and and there's the possibility that some quizzers may think they would have an advantage by reducing the the verses they study to learn both translations. Oh, I see what you're okay. So what you're saying is. The, it doesn't necessarily benefit the system overall to be able to allow it, and it could cause a quizzer to uh, make a poor choice strategically of memorizing 50 twice rather than uh, 100. Yes. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Because I'm not, I'm not advocating for these large pros, right? I just think it's simpler to not prohibit it, but I don't have a specific thing other than simplicity that I'm um, chasing, you know? Right, right, right. I know a lot of this is also going to be a non-issue probably at the district level. It's going to be more at the inter-district, uh, IOC-ish kind of levels, Great Westy kind of, of, of events where you're... And and probably not even within like organized programs that have like say a a, a meat label or a, sorry a, a material label that's fairly consistent or known throughout the year, but more it's going to be the the hodgepodge uh, hodgepodge hodgepodge uh, labels. So for example, like if you've got a program that's memorizing say Titus and you're memorizing Acts and you put Acts and Titus together, then it's like well maybe somebody memorized Titus a few years ago, uh, but in a, in a different translation. I think that's probably where the use case comes into play. But in a, in a typical setting, uh, it's hard for me to imagine somebody within a single quiz season starting on one translation and then deciding to switch to a different one like halfway through. Although, I mean, I suppose it could happen. But do we have to prove that someone definitely wants to do this? Um to decide not to prohibit it. Yeah. And that's fair. I, and that's fair. And I mean, I, and, 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 you know, Andrew does make a good point. Like, do we want to provide an opportunity for a quizzer to, to cause themselves to stumble? And it's like, well, I think if we advise quizzers not to do this, because it'll actually just be harmful for them to do it. Uh, and then advise coaches to advise their quizzers. Maybe that, maybe that solves the problem. 
because I mean, the, the incentive is, I think, already baked into it to not do it. I mean, there's there's a lot of things a quizzer can do to hurt themselves competitively that we don't prohibit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. Sure. Well, uh, sticking on 2.5 for a little bit and then uh, want to move on to fouls. But a couple of things I do want to uh, throw out there. Similar rules, and this is under Section 2.5 rulings uh, if you want to look it up. Uh, mispronounced words uh, the QM unambiguously understands to be the correct uh, word. Uh, the QM will judge correct as long as mispronunciation is not another word. So if you can't pronounce Melchizedek quite perfectly right, that's totally fine. The QM will... You know, uh, if you say Melchizedek, I guess would be one way to, I mean, I'm not saying which one is right or wrong, but there's different ways to be able to pronounce the word. And if it's unambiguous, uh, it, if it's unambiguous to the QM, what you're saying, then the QM counts you correct and everything is good, but you can't pronounce, you can't uh, mispronounce a word so badly that it is in fact a different word. So, um, I don't know how you would pronounce Melchizedek so wrongly that it turns into car or chariot or something. Uh, but if you were to mispronounce Melchizedek and it turned into chariot, you would not be counted correct. Um, so important uh, distinction there. And um, I don't know if this is in this section, but I do want to reiterate as soon as a quizzer is correct, they are correct. Whether or not the QM renders a ruling immediately, which they really should. They should try to render a ruling as soon as the, the quizzer is correct. But once the quizzer is correct, they are correct, regardless of anything else that happens. So this may end up generally happening, happening mostly during, let's say, synonymous uh, responses where uh, a quizzer provides a synonym uh, and the QM is looking up whether or not that synonym is acceptable. And so there may be like a half second or second or whatever delay between the, the quizzer being correct and the QM calling them correct. But remember, in all cases, if the, there is nothing bad about continuing to provide a response. So if a QM doesn't say anything you as a quizzer you should continue providing a response so if you're if you're out of context nothing you say will make you will be able to bring you back into into being correct and if you're correct nothing you say will cause you to become incorrect right so if a qm doesn't say anything uh just keep responding because 9 times out of 10 probably more than 9 times out of 10 the QM not saying anything is your indication that you're not correct yet. So keep keep trying until you run out of time. And the, there's no more and again prompts, is it? Is no, that yeah, no prompts whatsoever. Uh, so the the, the QM uh, will uh, speak the prompt, uh, and there's a there's a you know the, the formal way of of the QM doing so. But once the QM calls on a uh, a quizzer to respond. The QM says absolutely nothing until either the 40 seconds are out or the QM is making a ruling. Oh, it's glorious. <laughs> yeah. So it's very clear. So there's no interruptions. There's no timing. The QM doesn't have to freak out about like, are they close enough yet? Uh, so it's all, it's all very straightforward in that, in that regard. But for quizzers who are used to QM prompting, uh, that might be a little awkward at first. So if you are one of those quizzers where you're, you're, you're used to QM prompting, if you hear nothing, 
that just don't stop. <laughs> keep, keep trying. Keep uh, attempting to provide more uh, information. Andrew, you're you're the you're one of the two head coaches for the internationals teams uh, this year. Has that been an adjustment for those teams, or have they been able to kind of pick that up pretty easily? Uh, I would say it has not uh, been much of an adjustment at all, especially because um, I feel like in recent years um, the the prompts have been like as far as in our district and even the internationals in Great West quizmasters have been using prompts less frequently, I feel, more in line with, with the, how the rule book states they can be used in very specific circumstances. And especially in, in my room, when I quiz master, I, I don't use them a ton anyway. Um, so I feel like quizzers know at this point that if the quiz master doesn't say anything um, uh, and, is, and like is not making any sort of like judgment or, or anything, that they just kind of keep going. I haven't seen it be an adjustment. Cool. That's good to know. Well, and then the last thing I'm going to say on, on 2.5 here is and this may be something I think we talked about last episode or maybe the one before, but as a quizzer, when you are adding quizzer selected subtypes, if you get any part of those additional data requirements of those subtypes incorrect, the entire answer is incorrect. Um, so for example, by default, the, 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 you're going to be responding synonymously. If you call verbatim and you end up providing an answer that is not verbatim correct, but it is synonymous correct, you don't get points for the synonymous correct answer. So there is a risk reward for, uh, claiming, uh, that you want to, or, or calling for, uh, the a verbatim a answer here. So it's like calling your shot in, I guess, pool or something. Uh, or maybe there's other sports where that that's the case, but, um, so, you know, verbatim is a risk, but if you're able to pull it off, you're getting twice as many points, uh, as you would get from synonymous. So that's why it becomes valuable that way. All right. Any other things you guys want to talk about on, on rulings before we move on? Don't think so. Cool. So that was 2.5. So we're going to 2.9, uh, 2.7 or no. Yeah. 2.9. You're right. Sorry. 2.9 timeouts. Any participating quizzer or coach may call a timeout at any time between queries prior to the QM calling ready for the next query. Each team may call up to one timeout per quiz. Timeouts are 40 seconds in duration. During a timeout, designated coaches and those they designate may approach quizzers seated in front of the official's table. At no time, at no other time, may anyone approach quizzers seated in front of the official's table. Again, there's so much simplification here. There's not like one, only one used after a certain point. There's not only certain quizzers being able to call timeout. There's not the unwritten rule of if, if it's right before a bonus, we try not to allow timeouts, but they're technically allowed. Like none of that business. Yeah, right. So this is a good point. Um, each team may call a, a, a timeout, one timeout per quiz. So it literally, it's any quizzer on the team could call the timeout. The coach could call a timeout. They're part of the team. Uh, so all of that is completely viable. And if one team wants to call a timeout immediately after a previous timeout has concluded, that's totally that's totally reasonable. You can you can do that. 
um, you know, team one calls a timeout, team two immediately calls a timeout after that, and then team three calls a timeout after that. Well, okay, great. We had our three timeouts all at once. Um, and that's weird, but entirely, <laughs> entirely possible for, you know, a sequence of events to take place. Um, what do you guys think about the, the second paragraph there? Uh, you know, designated coaches, coaches and those they designate may approach quizzers, but not everyone else. So what that means is there's a team will have a designated coach or coaches uh, for a particular team. And those coaches can bring up anyone that they want to, but not, it can't be a free for all in the sense of anybody, you know, can, can come up on stage. Only the folks that the coach designate uh, can come up on stage. What do you guys think about that one? Is, is this a, a, designation that happens at the time of the timeout or sometime prior to the timeout it is not stipulated ergo it's sort of up to the coaches to decide what that means uh what it means for designation <laughs> so essentially the intent behind the vagueness of this rule um is that at the point of of the timeout the coach can basically take say you know a quizzer from a different team and bring them up or a parent or nobody or uh a stuffed animal, I don't know, whatever they want, whoever, whoever the coach wants to bring up, right? Um, the coach designates it. And by simply saying, actually not saying just simply doing it, right? But the idea being that uh, you, if you're just some random person in the audience, a spectator, you're not uh, allowed to go up unless the coach says, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you go, but it's not like the coach has to submit a, a, a clearing, a, a clearance list to the QM prior to the timeout or something like that. Yeah. There probably doesn't need to be a rule for it. There like... probably doesn't, but this has actually come up in the CMA rulebook uh, deliberations this last year. Um, and actually coming up for IBQ even about who is allowed to, uh, come up on stage during a timeout. Now, granted, you know, in, in reality, is a quiz master at, say, uh, CMA's IBQ going to call a foul if somebody comes up on stage who isn't a coach? I mean, I just, or three coaches come up on stage versus two. It's like, no, I don't think people are going to care that hard, but technically you're not supposed to. Uh, so ultimately this just comes down to, you know, hey, if you're just an audience member, don't rush up on stage, stage and give high fives to the quizzers that you're cheering for, uh, unless you happen to be designated by one of the coaches. I think that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I like the, that clarification there. All right. And well, honestly, I think there are some quiz masters, uh, or I feel like I could see some quiz masters who, who might give a warning for that at IVQ. Or, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, probably. I mean... I guess it, I guess I probably would if it started to get egregious. Um, like if there was a, a pack of like, you know, 10 or 10 or 15 kids who ran up or, or something like that, I'd be like, Hey, let's, let's tone this down a little bit. But if it was, uh, just some extra qu couple of quizzers or something, I probably wouldn't care. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, let's move on to the next one. And I think that one's mitigated by the fact that the coach has to approve it. Yeah. Right. So if like, 20 random teenagers you know that are all from that church want to do that the, the coach has to say like yes i approve this right you know right yeah and i'm um, i, I kind of lean it back towards this idea of like ultimately the coach i want the coaches to have 
more power to make decisions that are going to be in the best interest of their team. So if a if a if there's somebody who happens like let's say there's a a youth pastor from the home church visiting uh, and just happens to be there in that particular moment. And the coach is like, yeah, why don't you come up with us and encourage the team uh, or pray with them during this, this timeout or something like that. Uh, I, I want the coach to be able to have the power to say like, yeah, I, I want this to be an okay thing because I think it's going to benefit the quizzers in this particular moment. Uh, and I don't want to be the guy who stands in the way of, of a, of a, coach recognizing something that could benefit the quizzers. Uh, I want to provide the coach the autonomy and the authority to be able to do that. Yep. Next section from the rule book, 2.7 fouls, or the next section that we're going to talk about. The QM assesses a foul in any quizzer should that quizzer trigger after announcement initiation and prior to the prompt reading phase. Speak prior to the QM calling the quizzer's name. Engage in any communication after the announcement phase and prior to the conclusion of the ruling, other than to providers. Have reference material open without first calling for an open book quizzer selected query subtype. Call for an ineligible quizzer selected query subtype. Can I start asking questions? Yes. I imagine that trigger after announcement initiation, that announcement initiation is defined somewhere. Yeah, it's up above. It's under uh, the early part of two, uh, but it's part of that preamble. Cool. And then you say have reference material open. Does that imply that if it's not reference material, it's not fallible? Yeah, I guess technically you're right. I don't know that there would be any advantage or disadvantage to having non-reference material open but yeah the idea is um if you're if if you're gonna uh try for open book and therefore you're gonna bring some reference material up with you that reference material needs to remain closed until you call for open book right but this implies that you could have like non-reference material open while answering a non-open book question yeah i suppose what would be the what would be the harm <laughs> i don't know it's, I, I suppose yeah technically i suppose that is true which you don't want right like on a quote do i care if it's not reference material do do i care what do you mean it, are is reference material defined i always thought of reference material as the color-coded material and not just like oh no 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 unmodified it's, it's, text no it's uh so this is actually defined in section 2.7.1 uh it was subsection under fouls it actually talks about uh, paper-based documents. Uh, you can bring any uh, paper-based documents that you want, and those are considered to be reference material. Gotcha. So like if you, you could create a, you know, a finish the verse uh, prompt jump list or something, right? Um, that's totally reasonable. And in fact, encouraged. Uh, you just have to have that material closed uh, until you call for open book. Okay. And then call for an ineligible quizzer selected query subtype. Do you have like, like one thought that I had is what if a quizzer mistakenly says on a quote um, with reference, which is not eligible, right? right? Yeah, that that is that is the very definition of that bullet point. Um, and they would end up getting a foul if they made that mistake. Even yeah, that though was... it's something that like it gains them no advantage. It gains them no advantage. But um, yeah. So, I mean, I could certainly see a situation where maybe we strike this bullet, but, um, but yeah, the idea of if you call for a with reference on a quote, technically that is a foul. Oh, okay. Uh, 
So you do have to be careful when you're, you know, the idea being here that as a quizzer, you do need to be, you know, have some care and thought behind the subtypes that you're selecting. Sure. And if, I, I think if that's like the, the aim, then fine, because we can't judge intent, but I, I don't see a harm in a quizzer saying something that it's not a ton of harm. Uh, but it's it, the idea is in is to encourage quizzers to take care in in their responses. I don't. I want quizzers to, you know, forty seconds is a really long time. I want quizzers to take their time, use their time, and uh, be you know be, take care in their in their responses. You know, be. I think it's it's a, it's a quality metric more than anything. All right. Um, what about so if they say. A quizzer selected subtype that doesn't exist that's fallible as well uh no uh so if they if they say a query selected subtype that doesn't exist those are just words um and therefore you know any words that you say uh, uh are, are not necessarily going to if they as long as they don't take you out of context they don't make you incorrect so for example if i i mean i i'm struggling to think of a, a realistic scenario but let's say there was cause, i mean yeah, a quizzer, a query, a quizzer selected query subtype is an ex, is a is a set list. Um, so if I say something that's not in that list, then I'm not actually issuing a query subtype. Gotcha. So it's not that everything that you're not eligible for is ineligible. The ineligible is has to be a quizzer selected subtype that is also not like not valid here. Exactly. Yeah, it has to be invalid for the particular uh, situation. So Griffin, uh, would this also include if a quizzer called for add a verse on a prompt which came from the very last verse in the material range? Yes, it absolutely does apply. Yes. So, um, yeah. So if, if we're going through, you know, Acts chapter 20 and you call for add a verse on the last verse of chapter 20, uh, then you are, um, you're, that's a foul. It is not an incorrect, but it is a foul. So essentially that, and actually we'll get to this in a little bit, but this is actually an advantage because it doesn't mean an error would mean that you go to, let's say a toss up between, uh, between the other two teams. A foul does not. Brilliant. Okay. At, f at first I thought you were saying the last verse in the chapter, Andrew. And I was like, well, there's the next chapter, but you're like, no, the last verse in the entire material. I was like, Oh, <laughs> so I, mean, I was just trying to find any other example of an ineligible subject. Yeah. And, and I believe it's been a while since I've looked at this, but I believe it's based on book. Uh, but where's Adiverse? It's going to be under Adiverse and it's yeah, immediately next verse. Uh, right. Uh, for the, uh, it is invalid for a quizzer to call Adiverse for the last verse in any book. So in next season for Gipka, this will actually matter a whole lot more than say for an axe year. Uh, but yeah, if I'm in the last uh, verse of any of those four uh, books, I cannot add a verse. Hate to have dead air, but I'm trying to think about any more loopholes or situations where you would want to be able to call a foul. So speak prior to the QM calling the quizzer's name applies whether you have won this jump or not, which we want to be the case. One thing that is conspicuously absent in the foul section is any sort of fouling for poor sportsmanship. 
And the reason I did that is not because I want to encourage poor sportsmanship, quite the contrary. It's that I don't want the QM to have to evaluate what is over the line or not. And so um, I would much rather handle those things uh, in collaboration with coaches uh, and maybe advise uh, a quizzer like, hey, I, I consider that to be poor sportsmanship. Could you not do that? that? Something along those lines, right? But to be able to turn that into an objective ruling on a foul uh, just feels like it's collapsing the superposition a little bit too much. I'd, I'd rather handle this by dialoguing with coaches. I think that that is the optimal solution, but it does require more of the official. It does. Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no, right? Like, it. what if, what if a quizzer's behavior is potentially poor sportsmanship, but it's kind of like it's in that gray area, and you're like, well, I definitely don't want to condone that behavior, but is it is it far enough past a line where I want to call a foul on it. Like that's just starts to get squishy to me. I guess I just, I think my experience unfortunately has been that there are some times where you have to have competitive consequences, yeah. especially in, in a limited amount of time. Yeah, I can I see that. But I don't, but I don't think that there are so many of those that this is like a bad um, thing to not include. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, and I can envision some kind of system whereby there are competitive consequences of some kind, but only after a, uh, you know, some for some kind of future consequences, not in that quiz, but after a deliberation by officials concerning some kind of incident that happened. Um, so where, where the various officials or quiz masters get together and discuss whether there should be consequences for whatever happened. Right. Well, and, the other, I mean, keep in mind also there's uh, poor sportsmanship by quizzers that needs to be considered. There's also poor sportsmanship by coaches that also comes into play as well. So, like, I've been at uh, fairly prestigious uh, quiz meets where there were some officials who were unhappy about the way certain coaches were acting and treating them. And, uh, they, they, they were getting fairly upset and they weren't really sure how, how best to handle it. Like, do we actually call a foul? But, you know, that's these, these particular coaches and in the, in that particular situation, the worry was, well, if I call a foul, uh, that's going to spark a protest, uh, awful quick. It was, it was, I mean, it was a bad situation. It was a very, I I feel like it was a, you know, unfortunate situation because it's very much outside the spirit of what we want for, for quizzing. And fortunately it was, you know, a very, very, very rare. It's really, I think the only one of maybe two times in my entire quizzing experience of, I don't know, however many decades it's been at this point, um, where I've, uh, been, in a situation and I, and I actually, it wasn't me. It was, it was in a different room. So I, I never observed this. I only overheard uh, what was happening, but it's only been one of two times where I've overheard something like this uh, happen. Uh, and it's like, well, in, in a situation like that, I think the best solution is the meet director goes and has a private conversation with the coaches. Um, that's really, I think in the best interest of, you know, certainly for the quizzers, you don't want to embarrass coaches in public. Um, and I mean, it's probably probably better and more fruitful to have a conversation uh, between quizzes. But then it's like, okay, let's say you have that conversation and the coach 
doesn't change their attitude, doesn't make any adjustments. Um, what do you do at that point? Uh, it's like, well, I think it comes back to the meet director saying, maybe we don't invite you to the next meet or something like that. I like that. That's, that feels like the next inevitable consequence rather than trying to have that invade into the, the scoring, uh, potential of a particular quiz. But yeah, it's like, how do you handle that? Um, I don't want to ensconce too much in, in the rules there, but maybe that is something to consider maybe a section on multi-meet events or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think it can be a critical ability of an official um, to have competitive consequences if behavior is not good. Yeah. And I am I am actually specifically thinking of adults, not the participants. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. How would how would you make a an objective determination to be able to say like in that consequence like do you wait until it's just so egregious that it's it's just so clear and then let minor things slide or how do you make that call? How do you make it I guess how do you make it fair for everyone? I mean, I think you have to let it unfortunately rise to the level where it's almost irrefutable. Mm. Um, which, you know, cause it's going to be a judgment call, whether it happens in the quiz after the quiz, who, who does it, you know what I mean? Like it's going to be a judgment regardless. Um, so I think you would use it as a last resort, but the ability to say your team loses points or your team doesn't jump anymore. I think, um, if you need to, it's invaluable. Mm, yeah. And I don't know if there was ever a case where, well, I did have the, I always questioned whether I had the ability to call some sort of foul that prevented everybody on the team from jumping with, or did I have to call individual fouls on each of the participating quizzers? And could I do that if it was their coach that did something, you know, that always felt really murky to me. Um, but I don't think I actually had a situation where I would have wanted to do that. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes adults just don't want to, don't want to, listen at all. <laughs> Very true. All right. Well then uh, to wrap up this uh, section, important to note that, you know, if a QM does assess a foul, what's going to happen? Well, the QM is going to replace the query and restart the query process, but the quizzer who received a foul is ineligible to trigger for the restarted query. And of course, if you have multiple fouls in a row, all of the quizzers who received those fouls are ineligible for the restarted query each restarted query, right? So it's not like if you have one quizzer foul and then the second per, uh, quizzer fouls, then the first quizzer can come back in or something on the re-restarted query, that kind of thing. But uh, not that that's going to be a fairly common occurrence. Um, but the idea being a foul is not as bad as an error, right? So an error, uh, you know, the, your team, the entire team sits, the other two teams get a, a, a chance to uh, pick up a, a B or a C, uh, query, but under a foul, you're simply restarting that same, uh, you know, query identifier, you know, 1A, 2A, whatever it happens to be. And uh, only the quizzer who was assessed the foul is ineligible. The rest of the team is still eligible to uh, trigger for that particular query. Makes sense. And I, I like not having negative points for fouls and not having is there's no foul outs, right? There's no foul outs. There's no error outs. There's no negative points for errors, no negative points for fouls. Yep. Like I, I like the ability to call a foul, especially if someone is not controlling their light well, but I like that they don't have to leave the quiz at any point. 
Right, right, exactly. It's like, I mean, and essentially the penalty for an error is you're giving the other teams an opportunity to score a lot of points. And the, the, you know, the penalty for a foul is you're giving other quizzers uh, opportunities to trigger on, on a, and earn points, uh, where you yourself have to sit on that particular query. So, I mean, there is a negative, right? The negative is you don't get that opportunity for that particular query. It's not a huge negative, but it is non-zero. All right. Well, shall we dive into appeals? Yes. So you hit those last few sub um, bullets. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't talk about. Uh, where was one that I didn't talk about? Uh, should a designated coach attempt to communicate with quizzers after the announcement phase and prior to the conclusion of the ruling, the QM assesses a foul on each of the quizzers of that coach's team. So that kind of goes to your question, Scott, of like, can you foul a bunch of people simultaneously? It's like, well, if a coach attempts to communicate uh, inappropriately, then all uh, it, it, it essentially acts almost like a toss-up without actually being a toss-up. All the quizzers of the team have to sit. Right. Oh, I thought of another thing back on um, timeouts real quick. Mm-hmm. Why Why did you specify a quizzers seated in front of the officials table as opposed to just saying like participating quizzers? Where, what section was that? 2.9. At no time may... At no other time may anyone approach quizzers seated in front of the official's table or during a timeout designated coaches and those who, whom they didn't designate may approach quizzers seated in front of the official's table. Because, uh, no I mean, we're, we're, we're poking holes here, right. which is what I do. Mm-hmm. But it implies that um, anyone can approach the quizzers if they are standing or if they are seated not in front of the table. When really, we don't want anyone conversing with the participating quizzers unless it's okay. Yeah, that could be probably a little bit more clear. That's a good point. But I yeah, just remember yeah. the current rulebook has stuff about quizzers' hands and feet with relation to the chair and the floor, and some of it is could be written a lot better. And um, yeah, yeah, we would that's spend a, less time talking about it. That's a fair point. Yeah, I have I have found that sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, phrasing something in a more general way actually eliminates loopholes. Maybe I go too far towards subjectivity. But I find if you try to get really specific, precise, and objective, you create so many loopholes that you didn't intend to. (laughs) That's very true. Well, I mean, it's a lot easier to be objective if you have less words. Right. All right. 2.5.2 appeals. I think this is going to be a good one. When a quizzer or coach engaged in the quiz perceives a violation of any rule in the rulebook, Regarding an immediately preceding query, that quizzer or coach may issue an appeal prior to the QM calling ready for the next query, or the QM calling the quiz closed if the appeal involves the quiz's final query. The quizzer or coach must ensure the QM hears them say the word appeal and may interrupt the QM if necessary. The QM then allows the quizzer or coach up to 40 seconds to explain the rationale. And the QM would be calling ready at the end of their announcement initiation. That's right. Right. So um, I'm going to, yeah, that's basically what I, what I, when I say ready, that's the last word I say before I'm starting to mouth the beginning of, of the prompt. Uh, Right. Go ahead, Andrew. I I, I mean, I could be mistaken here, but doesn't the 
of QMC ready and then say begin. You're correct. Yeah, you're correct. I'm, I'm incorrect. So yeah, ready is the, it's the last two words, ready, begin. And so it's right before I say ready. So to Scott's point, it's like, I'm calling the, the query type. I'm calling the, the ID of the query, that kind of stuff. Um, you can totally, you can call appeal right up until I say the word ready. This is another nitpick, but you said when a quizzer or coach engaged in the quiz perceives a violation of any rule. Uh, I mean, it's technically thinks they perceive, right? Yeah. Like, if they, if it, per- if it, if it ends up being not a violation, it doesn't mean that they were not allowed to lodge an appeal in the first place. Right. I think that's what I meant by the word perceives the idea that, that sure. you, you see something, you perceive that there might be a violation of the rule, uh, that kind of thing versus there actually was a violation of the rule. Right. Cause cause the QM is thinking that they got it right. You know, mm-hmm. they're not knowing for sure that they got it right. And similarly, a coach or a, a quizzer or a coach is thinking that the the QM got it wrong. They're not knowing. Yeah. Um, no one, no one has to know to be able to start an appeal. Yeah. So if you, if you be, essentially maybe believes is a better word than perceives, but essentially uh, actually that actually probably is a better word when a quizzer or a coach engaged in the quiz believes a violation of any rule in the world. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. But the, the key takeaway from this is violation of any rule in the rule book. Um, and so one of the things I was trying to do in writing this rule book is to try to keep it as objective and as tiny as possible. And my intent had always been to actually come up with a second manual that is the call it the subjective manual. It's all of the things that we, as, as QMs and, and coaches and stuff that we ought to do. But if we don't do them precisely, uh, it's not, it's not necessarily appealable, but anything that is in violation of anything that's in the rule book is appealable. And I think a, a big reason that I am fine with this is because all of the rulings on like questions are designed to be as objective as possible, right? right with right. The, the, the source and all that, because even if our desire is for every ruling to be as accurate as possible, looking at the current age world, we call it age two, right? Yeah. There's all kinds of rulings that are, you know, fairly subjective. And even if a quiz master's kind of wrong on one of them, I don't want the coach to be allowed to be the first person to appeal it. Right. I kind of, you know, in that situation, I'm like, I want the quizzer to like take that first crack and then maybe we can have an appeal after that. Um, but in this age three um, CBQZ world where there's not, there's really not that subjectivity around rulings, then these appeals are really being lodged when someone thinks that the QM messed up in an objective way, which I don't think we now care um, how specifically related to the quiz material or something slightly more external it is, uh, I think we're fine with an appeal coming immediately from um, a coach. Right. And this kind of goes back to a bigger perspective of like, what is what is the point of an appeal, right? So the point of a challenge slash appeal in second age generally is around more than just mistakes. It's usually around things like interpretations where I said this word, I think a different word, uh, or I said this word that is a different word than what was in the text, but I think it is close enough that I should be counted correct. And I'm going to make an a, an argument 
uh, hopefully a rational argument that explains why this uh, synonym should be counted as correct uh, when maybe at first glance uh, it doesn't seem like it ought to be, you know, these, these sorts of things. That's in that kind of universe, I think having a coach be able to issue a challenge slash appeal is a really bad thing, right? Like I want the quizzers to be the ones who are saying like, no, let's, let's have an engagement on the interpretation of this particular word. I don't want, mm -hmm. um, you know, forgive me lawyers, but I don't want a lawyer coach to argue every possible synonymous, uh, change up, uh, you know, and, and be able to go down those, those rabbit holes, because I think the, you know, that could just be, that could just ruin the, the spirit of a quiz. But in, but in age three here, I am as a quiz master, I am locked in to the words that I can accept, uh, or reject that I must accept or must reject for synonymous responses. And so the beauty of this then is if a quizzer, thinks that there's a particular word that I accepted or rejected and they like, they want to appeal uh, because they think, Hey, I don't think you actually looked at the, at the thesaurus for that particular word. Then that actually is something that is an objective, provable, demonstrable thing that the QM either messed up on or didn't. And so in that universe, like, yeah, I want the, the quizzer to be able to appeal that. I want the coach to be able to appeal that as well. Right. So what what is a an interesting weird consequence of this a a coach could actually have a thesaurus pulled up um, a material thesaurus that's based on uh, on the rules and actually note something that a qm made a mistake on and can issue the appeal for that mistake right now a lot of folks from the second age camp might be thinking like that's going to encourage chaos and it's like well no actually I think quite the opposite. The goal of an appeal in third age is to get the right ruling. Nothing else matters. So a lot of the, the, the constructs around this, the appeal section in the, in the CBQ rulebook doesn't make a lot of sense until you put it under the, that philosophy of like, we're all wanting the appeals process to be solely about getting the right ruling. It's not about having a better argument. It's not about persuading people. It's about everybody aiming towards ensuring that we get the right ruling all the time. And we can do that because our, our, the rules are objective. So the, the idea is we, we hopefully will be able to get to the right ruling all the time. And that's what, why we're bothering with the, the appeal at all. As long as QMs don't make a mistake, the appeal is kind of pointless, right? Um, but QMs are human. They're going to make mistakes. So the appeal is there to ensure fairness across the board, every query, every quiz. I also think the logistics m make sense. Where, Like in age two, it wouldn't make sense for a quizzer or a coach to just be able to endlessly make their case of why brook and stream are interchangeable. <laughs> right. But in age three, it's either going to be in the source or it's not going to be. And so there's, you're kind of just saying like you messed up or you didn't there's not really any convincing that has there's no you know what i mean like you're presenting factual information you're not making a case right right and there's a limit so, there's a limit too there's you only get 40 seconds to explain your rationale now granted 40 seconds is a really long time uh but you can't drone on for five minutes yep i wonder if uh 
protests in age two would be viewed differently if the coach had to present their case publicly with a time limit and then mm-hmm. the quiz master ruled on them as opposed to the vague like if you're able to come to a conclusion that would be ideal but if not we're going to get somebody else you know yeah andrew you, you were about to say something uh it's it's actually kind of only tangentially uh related to appeals so maybe once we're done with appeals i'll, I'll circle back to that okay i mean our middle name is tangentially related but uh, <laughs> that's so true <laughs> next bullet point in appeals the QM may solicit input from any source the QM feels useful to judge the appeal. Should the QM ask for, for input from any team or coach other than the quizzer or coach who issued the appeal, the QM must equally ask all teams and coaches. So that that highlights something that I just glazed over from the first bullet is that only the appealing coach is or quizzer is saying something. There's no like rebuttals, which again are are almost not well, are not really needed in um in a more more objective ruling world yeah that's exactly the case right so like if if somebody is is making an appeal they're making an appeal based on something that's objective theoretically right and therefore they are the the qm nine times out of ten well maybe eight times out of ten is going to have enough information to be able to figure it out one way or the other like right then and there and it's just done right but if there's ever a case where the QM is like, yeah, I actually want to get other input, then this second uh, paragraph here is, you know, requiring that the quiz master not just ask like one other captain or one other coach or something like that, but actually get feedback from uh, everyone equally. And you can see again here, since the desire is to get to the right ruling and the rulings are, I hesitate to. I hesitate to say 100% objective, but we're trying to design them to be that way. Um, Because that's the case, then we can ask anyone for input, potentially, because we're not holding it as a virtue to have the information that is from the material that is cogent to this argument, right? Right. We're just saying, like, can can we get it right? Exactly. And I don't want – this also encourages – actually, not encourages – it. It discourages quizzers from trying to memorize the rule book. I've had, as a coach, I've had quizzers who, you know, would study the rule book a little bit more than the material. And that's anti-missional. I want a quizzer to memorize the, uh, the, the, the material, not the rule book. Now, granted, I certainly, Need, I, certainly quizzers need to be aware of the rules, right? Um, so that they can form, uh, better challenges, well, better appeals, right? But if you've got a team of, say, you know, rookies who don't have a lot of experience with the details of the rules, I want a capable coach to be able to issue an appeal on their behalf because, you know, otherwise, uh, they're going to be at a fairly significant disadvantage. Because the goal here is I don't, I don't care about the arguments pro or con, I care about, like, let's get to the right ruling. 100%. Next bullet. The QM must then provide a ruling on the appeal, an explanation of the ruling, including answering any follow-up questions any participants may ask. There's a potential uh, open-ended time thing there, including answering any follow-up questions any participants may ask. Hopefully, again, mitigated by the fact that ideally we're talking about objective rulings and factual information and not appeals to emotion, better um, phrasing of arguments. You know, that should really not be a... uh, important 
Back to the rule book, the QMO, answering any follow-up questions any participants may ask and a description of how the quiz will be altered to integrate the ruling. The QM's ruling on the appeal is limited only to correcting violations of rules from the rule book. However, it is not limited to any rationales or other input received during the appeal process, which makes clear something that was never mentioned in the current age two rulebook that I think most quiz masters came to adopt as the optimal way to do it, which is if I realize I made the wrong ruling, even if no one in the challenge or the protest made this case, I'm just going to reverse my ruling to be more right. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. So ultimately, if somebody appeals something that is not a mistake I made, but in the process of that appeal, I realize I made a different mistake, I actually need to fix that different mistake. <laughs> so um, the idea being here that, you know, the QM's uh, ruling uh, on the appeal is limited only to correcting violations of the rules. Uh, that could be any violation of, of any rule. Uh, and we want to correct all violations of the rules that we're aware of, and hopefully we can become aware of those things. But the first sentence in this paragraph for me is the most important, right? I, I loathe situations where there will be an appeal, there will be, or a challenge, whatever, and there will be intelligent, three captains that intelligently provide feedback on something. They provide articulate, uh, well-thought-through arguments, pro and con or whatnot. And then the QM thinks about it, talks to their the other officials at the table, and then says, uh, I'm accepting the uh, I'm I'm accepting the challenge or I'm overruling the challenge or whatever. And then they just keep going. No explanation, no, no anything else. Like to me, that and and of course that's completely valid to do under the second age rules, completely okay to do. I just feel like it doesn't help the program. It doesn't, it doesn't encourage uh, the quizzers to memorize more, right? Like I, as, as a QM, uh, if there's an appeal uh, made on something, I mean, it's basically something I messed up on. And so therefore I need to explain actually what happened and why I'm making the ruling, the, the, the ruling on the appeal, the way I'm doing it. And then if somebody has a follow-up question on something, they're like, Hey, that doesn't make sense. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like I want to, as a QM, uh, for missional outcome, positive missional outcome, I want to then say like, yes, I totally want to answer all your questions. And you're right, Scott, you know, this could, that could devolve into a significantly long discussion. Hope, hopefully it doesn't, because again, we're talking about objective rules and ultimately we're not debating, well, is that a good rule, right? That's going to happen outside the quiz because maybe there are bad rules and we want to change the rules in the rule book. Um, so that's not the point of the appeal. The point is get to the correct ruling. And so any kind of questions, follow-up questions that exist there are going to be related to like interpretations of the rules and applications of those, uh, of those specific rules, right? And then you certainly want to require the QM to then describe how the quiz is going to be changed to be able to integrate uh, that particular ruling. That doesn't necessarily happen all the time. Good QMs will do that, but I wanted to make that a requirement in the rules that QMs do it. Yep. I always thought that for um, regular questions, the ruling's there, and for challenges, protests, or in this case, appeals, that a QM should be required to give their 
explanation. Because um, I definitely think, especially in the cases of challenges, QMs will, or tough rulings, they'll hide behind not having to make their case for it. And I can I can sympathize, right? I can sympathize a little bit. Like if you've got, uh, you know, let's say it's an interpretation of, you know, Brook versus Stream, right? Uh, to your example, and you've got really well thought through intelligent arguments uh, from all three captains uh, that attack it from you know, two different sides. And, you know, you're at the end of those arguments, you're sitting there going like, I'm even more confused what the right answer is now than I was before. Right. Like somebody, somebody starts uh, talking about the original Greek and saying, well, that word is this. And that means in this context, this other thing. And somebody then goes and says, ah, but you know, there's this other Greek word, this other way. And like a QM can totally be in in the land of the lost at that point. Right. And so I can totally sympathize with this notion of like, okay, well I have to make a ruling. And the last thing you want, and I've seen some Q QMs do this and I think it's terrible, but I can sympathize. A QM might get to a point of saying, I can't make a ruling. So we're going to redo the question. Um, and I'm like, I, gosh, I hate that. Um, but I can, but I can sympathize. Right. And so, you know, you're, you're sitting there going like, I see pros and cons on both sides. Both of the arguments are, are equally valid. I, do I just admit that I'm flipping a coin here? Um, and that feels deeply like if I'm going to admit the fact that like, yeah, great arguments on both sides, I have to pick somebody. So I'm going to pick this one, but the other argument is equally valid. Uh, can you imagine being the QM and being in that situation and having to admit that, yeah, I just randomly picked this other team because I had to pick somebody. Uh, what a horrible situation for the QM. But and, you, but that means you're a bad official. Well, no, no. I mean, well, let, let's say, let's say it's Brooker stream. I, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's say it's some sort of subjective ruling and both captains, let's say there's just two sides, right? Two captains and they're arguing one pro and one against or whatever. Uh, and you're like, they have equally valid points. I, I can't make a ruling based on this. What do you, what do you do? Because, because again, it, it's subjective. You can't tell me that on a judgment call, the official is exactly split 50, 50. Sure. It's like flipping a coin and having it land on its on its edge it the the possibility of it happening is extraordinarily rare uh to the point of absurdity but theoretically it could happen sure but i, I mean the, you're the one entrusted with making the rulings you have to use the rule book and nothing else and so at the point where you're like hey the rule book has this wording and i think you know using that wording and applying it to this subjective situation it absolutely comes out really close and the way that I'm leaning and going to rule is this way. Yeah. It, it, like there's, you can absolutely admit that you think it's really close and really subjective, but you should be required to state what, what rule in the rule book are you using to make this, you know, like if the rule book says similar with the same meaning and you're going to, you know, you're going to have to say like why this does is similar with the same meaning or why it isn't and, and not just, so, and not something else. And so I think that's what the requirement is. It's like to ensure that the officials are actually ruling on things using using as a logical basis things that they're allowed to use. Now, you might disagree with how they applied it, um, but I sure would have liked to know why, you know, what 
what a quiz master was falling back on when they would make a ruling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and I mean, that's why I want to make it required that the QM explain the ruling, um, because the goal is transparency, uh, objective, transparent, uh, and reproducible, and making quizzers aware of everything that's going on so the quizzer the, so the quizzers can predict the future they they have they have a basis uh they have a certain um, stability that they can rely upon exactly right like it's one thing to you're like oh yeah this is subjective and i disagree with like which way of the subject you know of the subjective coin you went but you can at least you you should be fine with the the basis right even if right. you weren't fine with the end result um, but I, I would bet a lot of the times we wouldn't be fine with the basis that the QMs were using if they were forced to disclose it every time. Yeah. All right. So that one, however, it is not limited to any rationales or other input received during the appeal process. That was the end of that bullet. And then two more bullets. The QM then asks for consensus of the coaches. Uh, if there is – oh, so QM, one person appeals and has 40 seconds. The QM then might – provide a ruling and then asks for, asks for any follow-up questions then asks for consensus if there is not a consensus is is consensus unanimous or is it majority uh it's uh, it's it's um uh, unanimous Neither. okay uh, consensus if there's not a consensus the officials and coaches confer for no longer than three minutes the qm calls in a meet director to uh to issue the judgment should any coach request it at any time during this period should no coach request the meet director and the conference period ends um ends without consensus the qm issues the judgment if the coaches are unanimous that position overrides the qm a team may not call for an appeal in a quiz after their second declined appeal in the quiz so i think a lot of the constructs of an appeal match h2 but they're structured a little bit more linearly and i would imagine it's going to be fairly rare to get to those latter stages in the linear process. Yeah, it's 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 rare to get to those latter stages. And then the other issue about it is there's no question about, say, a protest, right? So in the in the old world, uh, there's challenge, and then if the challenge is overruled, a coach may issue a protest that doesn't exist in in the in the age three world of appeal, literally everything is protested automatically, you know, in effect, right? The idea being that like you make a, you, you try to reach consensus, you make a ruling on the appeal. If there isn't consensus, then you discuss for, for up to three minutes, right? Um, then it's like you either gain consensus at that point or you don't. Uh, but at any particular point, um, a coach can say, yeah, I'm, I'm not liking how this is going. Let's bring in the meat director to make a decision. Um, ultimately, at the end of the three minutes, if there isn't, uh, let's say, a, a call for the meat director, the QM will just make a judgment. However, if if the coaches are unanimous that the QM made a mistake, that overrides the QM. Because the, ultimately, the, the, goal, the goal here is let's get to the right ruling. If you've got two coaches, but you also don't want anybody to basically hijack the process, right? So if you have a particular coach that's like overly combative in their appealing, they want to appeal, they're appeal happy, right? And and the QM thinks one thing, two of the three coaches think the same, and the one uh, holdout coach is is just trying to make things difficult. 
you don't want to silence that third coach. You want to give them the opportunity to make the case, to make the appeal. If there is, if there's not consensus at, after the explanation, it's like, okay, great. We're going to, the, the officials and coaches will confer. Um, and that one coach has the opportunity for those three minutes to try to convince, uh, people to change their mind. And if they can't, then it's like the QM just issues, issues a judgment and you move on. Right. However, if there's a case where the QM is in the wrong and the coaches, all three of them are like, yeah, we think you're in the wrong. The, the unanimity, the unanimity of the coaches overrides the QM. Now, again, what's the probability of these latter things happening? Really, really small because you're not going to be arguing over things that are subjective. You're going to be arguing over things that are black and white in the rule book. So it's going to be some sort of interpretation of the rules uh, that was either misinterpreted or misunderstood or something like that. Uh, and so the probability that we get to the three coaches being um, in agreement with each other against the QM is hyper, hyper, hyper rare. But if that is the case, I'm going to trust the opinion of those three coaches over the QM. Yeah, I think I like that because if they want to do something completely not so I, I guess, is there a scenario where the three coaches want to do something that is not supported by any rule and it would have negative consequences on teams not participating in the quiz? There could be, right? So like, let's say you're in a sum score, uh, a, sor- a, a score sum bracket. The idea is everybody wants to get the most number of points possible, you could be in a, a scenario where the three coaches collude <laughs> to, to try to maximize points in that particular quiz and therefore override the QM. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that, that could be the case, but the probability of this happening is so incredibly remote. I'm not, I'm not, all that concerned about it, but you're right. I mean, you, you could have colluding coaches in that regard, but it would take all three of them to be benefited in a way that would make colluding, um, um, appealing. Right. Exactly. And if this were, if this was something that was actually going to happen, this is one of those things where like, I feel like the best way to address this is after the quiz outside the quiz. Right. One thing, the, so the last bullet, I'm not, I feel there is a need for the last bullet to exist, but I'm not a fan of it. Um, so I'm just, I'm stating that more for the record. Um, a team may not call for an appeal in a quiz after their second declined appeal in that quiz. I, this, this kind of goes against a little bit. It kind of goes against the philosophy of the point of the appeal is to get to the right ruling. So if a team has a third or fourth or fifth decline appeal, but we're always striving to get to the right rulings. Why is like, like doesn't this ultimately run counter to that philosophy? And I I feel like there's a case to be made for an appeals happy coach who wants, or, or captain for that matter, who wants to try to appeal everything. Um, And that can start to get pretty negative for the quiz experience. And this is sort of the, 
ejector seat for that to basically say like, okay, we're just going to stop. And, and ultimately the other thing that you'll note here is there's no negative points. There's a, a you know, you get overruled or let's say you're, you've got an, a declined appeal, uh, second declined appeal. There's no point penalty for appealing here, uh, because the, I don't want to penalize points for attempting to get to the right ruling, but at the same time, I want to dissuade folks from appealing because they can. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Of course, the, the, the negative part of this is the way the rules are written right now, it certainly would encourage a rule, a, an appeal happy captain or coach. And I shouldn't say captain. It's really any quizzer can do this. Um, there's basically, if you still have your two, if you've had no declined appeals, once you get to say query 10, then maybe you appeal 11 and 12 uh, as Hail Marys. Um, I mean, that's sort of contrary to the spirit of, of, of quizzing there, but I mean, it is something that, that could be done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't see that there would be much. I mean, I don't think much would come of that because especially if, if they're only doing it as a Hail Mary, I think, you know, they'd have to come up with something to appeal on the fly. And then it would probably be pretty quickly overruled. So I don't think you're even adding that much time to the quiz by doing it. Yeah, you're right. Because they could say whoever's making the appeal makes the appeal. And if it's um, frivolous, the QM can just immediately rule. And uh, so then it's like, okay, well, let's say it's, let's say a coach makes that the coach could say, I want to, uh, I don't, I'm not in consensus. So, I mean, technically a coach could slow down a quiz for three minutes if they wanted to do that. But I mean, of course, you know, a QM, uh, one of the other coaches could call in the meet director at that point, but yeah, it starts to get really messy and ugly, but then it's like, I don't want to, I, I almost want to allow for that messiness and then just deal with the consequence, um, outside of the quiz. This feels like, this feels like democracy, right? It's, um, it's it's the worst form of government except all the others. Um, it it's like I don't really like how the, this the appeals section works in these last two bullets, but like everything else is worse. <laughs> yes. Well, and on that, uh, that's the last of our our topics. Um, before we jump ship on this episode, Andrew, you've been you've been um, coaching the internationals team uh, teams plural. There's two of them. Um, for a little while now, what kind of, you know, looking at the, the rule book as a whole and the system as a whole, what are some of the strategies? Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe don't uh, share secret strategies, but what, what are some strategies for prep and operations that you're willing to share? Um, for, for prep. I mean, I think we've, we've gone over some, some strategies as far as um, what you can do in a quiz uh previously i think for preparation it's still the the best thing to do is just to memorize as many verses as you can with with reference um it'd be good to to memorize you know if you're not going to memorize full material to memorize it in chunks of at least two verses or really you know get as big a chunks as you can so that if you happen upon a prompt that you from a verse you know that you can add a verse uh, fairly regularly. So I suppose that's one thing. That's a really important point. Yeah. Like the, the, the add a verse, uh, is such a, it, it's, 
it in, it encourages significantly the idea of memorizing in chunks um, rather than like individual verses here and there. That's a very good point. It just seems to me that because so many things are going to be different, that anything that you can control, you should. And so I would even more try to to be really, really automatic in a smaller number of things um, than to try to do as best you can in, in everything. And if right. that means punting entire subtypes or entire chapters or – you know, what have you, I think that that would be a good way to go about it. Yeah. Andrew, I don't know if you want to share this because this may be um, a closely guarded uh, PNW secret right now, but if you're willing to share it, have you guys been practicing any strategies for alternating uh, quizzers uh, responding for to, to prompts to try to uh, maximize the plus one follow-on bonus? Um. What I will say is that I definitely have broached this with uh, the teams, and I personally think it's it's a very good strategy that all teams should try to employ if possible. Yeah, the trick is you you basically have to have yeah, it's almost like what's the risk reward value there? It's like if you've got other folks on the team, <coughs> excuse me, if you've got other folks on the team who are full material then it's like, yeah, maybe I want to throttle back my speed just ever so slightly because I just won the last uh, uh, query or I got correct on the last query. But yeah, it's a it's a risky strategy because you're pulling a third of your competitive uh, speed, I guess, uh, from your team away. But maybe that's maybe that's worth the one point. Like, and then by what degree do you slow down? Right? Do I slow down by? A full prompt? Probably not, but maybe I slow down by, you know, uh, uh, a word or two. Uh, and then you got to flip that against the uh, how many translations are we doing? Uh, and uh, theoretically, a team is probably all going to be memorizing the same translation, although certainly that is not required. Uh, but I think in, in the universe that we live in, for IOC, uh, each team uh, has a single translation that they've memorized, uh, memorized uh, across the whole team. So if I get, you know, query two correct, and then I slow down a little bit, the next query is from a, a remote or a foreign translation. That makes it actually a little bit harder on the other two uh, folks on my team. And so do I, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of mechanics that come into play. So I, I will absolutely say that it's easier to get this bonus in H3 than the third and fourth and fifth person bonuses in H2. But I found that in H2, correct questions were just so scarce at internationals that trying to get those um, was not a good idea if it involved your best quizzer slowing down at all because they were not guaranteed to max out they're scoring in a given quiz. And so you were, I think you were actually hurting your ceiling. Now, I don't know whether the relative ease of getting that extra point in age th three, because it's not, this is different than the third, fourth, fifth quizzer bonus, right? It's just a non-consecutive quizzer bonus. Right. I don't, I don't know if it's still worth it, to, you know, depending on the, how scarce questions are going to be or not. 
it's going to be really based on the the level of the competition, right? So like if 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 100%. Yeah, like if the competition is really strong, it it's so not worth it. Like it it's you know, you may slow down slightly, but it's like if another, you know, team picks it up, they can they can walk away with another 7 points or something uh or more if they've got a, you know, second or third quiz or bonus or something. Uh and it's like is it really worth the risk to to for for one point uh i i don't know i just i don't think it is but at at the lower ends of the competition like you have, if you have a a fairly weak uh uh quiz maybe it's a little bit more worth it uh to slow down to let a few more words come out there um so i don't know it's it's hard to say i think and and it's also based not only on the level of competition but also on um so the situation in the quiz as far as what prompts are placed where and with what translation. And if that information is available ahead of time for teams to strategize with, they could see a spot where they say, okay, here's a chapter reference on a foreign translation. We should try to have our best quizzer attempt that one. The next one is a phrase in our translation, and that might be a good opportunity to get a follow-up. And so like, it's identifying these sections where those follow-up bonuses might be easier to get than in other places and trying for them there. And if they don't get them, then they just go back to business as usual on the, the next prompt. That's a really good point. That That's an incredibly important point because like you can actually reverse engineer or not reverse engineer. You can think backwards in terms of, of, of your, of the, of the quiz. So let's say there's a foreign, let's say on query six, there's going to be a foreign translation chapter. You don't know which chapter, but let's say you want your best quizzer on the team to go after that particular uh, query. So therefore you have working backwards, you have that particular quizzer slow down ever so slightly on query five so that your other query, your other quizzers might be able to pick up a query on five, then let your top quizzer go after six on the foreign. Um, that actually could be very interesting. Right. And depending on like, you know what the, the types are going to be. And so it could be very advantageous if your best quizzer is not the strongest at a type and they just got the previous query. Well, Maybe just have them sit out or go slower on this next one anyway, you know? Right, right. So there's there's a lot more potential knowledge, I think, of a situation that can guide how optimal or suboptimal the strategy is. But I think, like, going into – if, you know, your top quizzer gets question one, going into query two, I, I wouldn't rate them back, you know, unless you're finding that your best quizzer is, oh, they're already quizzed out by query seven all the time, you know? Um, but – the best quizzers internationals in H2 did not quiz out a majority of the time. Right. Right. Well, and that's, that's kind of what I think thinking we're going to see at IOC. I think at, um, you know, at the lower levels of competition, I think we're going to see probably more ceilings reached than at the higher levels of competition. Right. Cause at the higher levels, at the lower levels of competition, if you've got a really strong, quizzer on a team of you know mid-level quizzers the the strong quizzer will have a more opportunity to uh, get queries and be able to hit their ceiling but as you get closer and closer towards finals you're going to uh, be seeing teams where you're the teams that are that are sticking around are going to be the teams where you've got really strong quizzers across the board ergo it's going to be increasingly difficult to be able for anybody to reach their ceiling uh, towards the, towards the end as they approach finals. Yep. 
All right. Well, interesting stuff. Any last parting thoughts on any of this stuff? I just think that there's a lot more choice in H3, which I think is great. Um, but I I would absolutely want to simplify this for quizzers if I was coaching. And, absolutely. And, and limit their 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 choice vector. And, you know, work through it with them, of course. But like limit their choice vector far in advance of competition starting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the idea of, of, um, you know, if you're, if you're starting a new team, just tell them to memorize and answer everything synonymously. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't worry about the complexities of the rules until you have to. Yeah. Right. Don't, don't decide on running a third base until you're at second base safely. <laughs> Andrew, were you going to say something? Um, no, actually, I think that's, that's all I'm going to say for, uh, for now on all this. I sense that Andrew has a lot more to say, but he will wait until after IOC to say it. <laughs> he doesn't want to give away too much strategy uh, uh, at this point. Smart. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> all right. Well, and on that bombshell, I will say thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Scott. And thank you guys all for listening. Thanks, Griffin. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us. Thank you for having me.